Act One of The Big Drum by Arthur Wing Pinero. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Persons of the Play Philip Mackworth, read by Nemo. Sir Randall Filson, Knight, read by Todd. Bertram Filson, his son, read by Thomas Peter. Sir Timothy Baradell, Baronet, read by Alan Mapstone. Robert Roop, read by Adrian Stevens. Mr. Collingham Green, read by Larry Wilson. Leonard Withdrip, Sir Randall's secretary, read by Shashang Jakmula. Alfred Dunning of Silito and Dunning's Private Detective Agency, read by Son of the Exiles. Noise, Mr. Roop's Servant, read by Stephen Fellows. Underwood, Servant at Sir Randall's, read by Kevin S. John, Mr. Mackworth's Servant, read by Devorah Allen. Ottoline de Chaumier, Comtesse de Chaumier. Nay Filson, read by Eva Davis. Lady Filson, read by Sonia. The Honourable Mrs. Godfrey Anslow, read by Lian Yao. Mrs. Walter Quebec, read by T.J. Burns. Miss Tracer, Lady Filson's secretary, read by Avai. Stage directions, read by Michael Manx. Period. 1913. Act 1. Robert Roop's flat in South Audley Street. June. Act 2. Morning room at Sir Randall Filson's Ennismore Gardens. The next day. Act 3. Mackworth's Chambers, Gray's Inn. November. Act 4. The same place the following morning. The curtain falls for a moment in the course of the first and third acts. The Big Drum The First Act The scene is a room elegantly decorated in a flat in South Audley Street. On the right, two windows give a view through muslin curtains of the opposite houses. In the wall facing the spectator are two doors, one on the right, the other on the left. The left-hand door opens into the room from a dimly lighted corridor, the door on the right from the dining room. Between the doors there is a handsome fireplace. No fire is burning and the grate is banked with flowers. When the dining room door is opened a sideboard and a side table are seen in the further room, upon which are dishes of fruit, an array of ice plates and finger bowls, liqueurs in decanters, glasses, silver, etc. The pictures, the ornaments upon the mantelpiece, and the articles of furniture are few but choice. A high-backed settee stands on the right of the fireplace. Near the settee is a fauteuil stool. Facing the settee is a Charles II armchair. On the left of the room there is a small table with a chair beside it. On the right, not very far from the nearer window, 
are a writing table and writing chair. Pieces of bric-a-brac lie upon the tables where there are also some graceful statuettes in ivory and bronze. Another high-backed settee fills the space between the windows, and in each window there is an armchair of the same period as the one at the fireplace. The street is full of sunlight. Note throughout, right and left are the spectators right and left, not the actors. Robert Roop, seated at the writing table, is sealing a letter. Noise enters at the door on the left, followed by Philip Mackworth. Noise, announcing Philip. Mr. Mackworth. Roop, a simple-looking gentleman of fifty, scrupulously attired, jumping up and shaking hands warmly with Philip as the servant withdraws. My dear Phil. Philip, a negligently, almost shabbily dressed man in his late thirties, with a handsome but worn face. My dear Robbie. A triumph to have dragged you out. Looking at his watch. Luncheon isn't till a quarter to two. I asked you for half past one, because I want to have a quiet little jaw with you beforehand. Delightful. Uh, I'd better tell you at once, old chap, whom you'll meet here today. Aha! Your tone presages a most distinguished guest. Seating himself in the chair by the small table. Is she a grand duchess, or is he a crowned head? Roop, smiling rather uneasily. Wait, I work up to my great effect by degrees. We shall be only six. Collingham Green? Oh, Lord. Now, Phil, don't be naughty. The fellow who does the society gossip for the planet. And does it remarkably neatly, in my opinion. Puh. Leaning back in his chair, his legs outstretched and spouting. Mrs. Trevelyne Potter, wearing a gown of yellow charmeuse, exquisitely draped with chiffon, gave a dance for her niece, Miss Hermione Stubbs, at the Ritz Hotel last night. That sort of stuff. Roop pained. Somebody has to supply it. Pretty Mrs. Claude Grimes came on from the opera in her pearls, and Lady Beakley looked younger than her daughter in blue. Roop, ruefully. You don't grow a bit more reasonable, Phil. Not a bit. I beg pardon. Go ahead. Roop, sitting on the foot-eye stool. Mrs. Godfrey Anslow and Mrs. Wally Quebec abuse them. Bless their innocent hearts. They'll be glad to meet Mr. Green. I trust so. A couple of pushing, advertising women. Really? <laughs> Sorry. That's five, with you and me. That's five, as you justly observe. Clearing his throat. <clears> throat> the sixth. I prepare myself for your great effect. Roop, with an effort. Um, Madame de Chaumier is in London, Phil. Philip, sitting upright. Madame de Chaumier? Disturbed. Is she coming? Yes. Philip, rising. Confound you, Robbie! She's got rid of her house in Paris and rejoined her people. She's with them in Ennismore Gardens. Thank you. I'm aware of it. One reads of Adeline's movements in every rag one picks up. She's the biggest chasseuse of the crowd. 
I assure you, she appears very much altered. What? Can the leopard change his spots? Her family may still bang the big drum occasionally and give it an extra whack on her account, but Ottiline herself... Fah! Why the devil have you done this? I confess, in the hope of bringing about a reconciliation. You? You good-natured old meddler. Does she expect to find me here? No. Philip, making for the door on the left. I'll bolt then. Roop, rising and seizing him. You shall do nothing of the kind. Forcing him down on the fauteuil stool. You'll upset my luncheon table. Tidying himself. You're most inconsiderate, you are positively, and you've disarranged my necktie. How is she looking, Robbie? Brilliant. Putting his necktie in order. Is that straight? Brilliant. Philip, gazing into space. <sighs> Ten years ago, old man. Quite. It was at her father and mother's in Paris that I made your acquaintance, recollect? Perfectly, in the Avenue Montaigne. I had a flat in the Palais Royal at the time. You were one of the smart set. It was worth their while to get a hold of you. My dear Phil, to be moderately fair, you weren't in the smart set. No. I was trying my hand at journalism in those days. Dreadful trade. I was Paris correspondent to the Whitehall Gazette. That's why I was favoured. Robbie. Hey? You'll scarcely credit it. One evening, while I was at work, Adeline turned up with her maid at my lodgings in the Rue Soufflot, sent the maid out of the room, and proposed that I should mention her family in my letters to the Whitehall. Mention them? Drag in allusions to them constantly. Their entertainments and so forth. Boom them, in fact. Was that the cause of the the final... Philip nodding. Yes. The following week, her engagement to de Chaumier was announced. Well, in spite of all this, I'm convinced she was genuinely attached to you, Phil, as fond of you as you were of her. Philip, resting his head on his hands. Oh, shut up. Anyhow... Here's an opportunity of testing it, dear excellent friend. She's been a widow twelve months. You need to have no delicacy on that score. Philip, looking up. Why, do you suggest? Certainly, and without delay. I hear there's a shoal of men after her, including Tim Baradell. Philip, with a grim smile. <laughs> Bacon Baradell? They say Sir Timothy's in constant attendance. And what chance do you imagine... What a poor literary cove stand against a real live baronet and the largest baking curer in Ireland. Roop, rubbing his chin. You never know. Women are romantic creatures. She might prefer the author of those absorbing works of fiction whose pages often wrap up Tim Baradell's rashes. Philip, rising. <laughs> giving himself a shake. Even so, it can't be done, Robbie. Though I'm grateful to you for your amiable little plot. Walking about. Heavens above, if Adeline married me, she'd be puffing my wares on the sly before the honeymoon was half over. And a jolly good job, too. Moving to the left, peevishly. The truth is, my dear Phil, you're a crank. An absolute crank on the subject of the, ah, the natural desire of some people to keep themselves in the public eye. Mercy on us. If it comes to that, I'm an advertiser. 
if it comes to that you miserable old sinner you are i admit it frankly i own it gratifies me exceedingly to see my little dinner parties and tea parties here or at my club chronicled in the press and it gratifies my friends also many of them wouldn't honour me at all if my list of guests weren't in the fashionable intelligence next morning <sighs> yes you may roar i declare i shudder to think of the difference it'd make to me socially if i didn't advertise robbie i blush for you tush it's an advertising age philip stalking to the fireplace it's a beastly vulgar age it's the age i happen to live in and i accommodate myself to it pacing the room as he warms to his theme and if it's necessary for private individuals such as myself to advertise as i maintain it is how much more necessary it is for you to do so a novelist a poet a would-be playwright a man with something to sell dash it they've got to advertise soap and soap's essential why not literature which isn't and yet you won't find the name of mr philip mackworth in the papers from one year's end to another except in a scrubby criticism now and again excuse me there are the publishers announcements publishers announcements i'm not speaking of the regular advertising columns what i want to see are paragraphs concerning you mixed up with the news of the day information about you and your habits interviews with you letters from you on every conceivable topic philip grinning <laughs> do you roop joining philip oh my dear phil i entreat you feed the papers it isn't as if you hadn't talent you have advertising minus talent goes a long way advertising plus talent is irresistible feed the papers the more you do for them the more they'll do for you quid pro quo to the advertiser shall advertisement be given newspaper men are the nicest chaps in the world feed them gratis with bright and amusing copy as you term it and they'll love and protect you forever not forever robbie whom the press loves die young it's fickle you mean some day it'll turn and rend you perhaps still if you make hay while the sun shines the sun you don't call that the sun Psh. roop leaving him oh i've no patience with you upon my word your hatred of publicity is is is, is morbid it's worse than morbid it's um, victorian sitting in the chair by the small table there i can't say anything severer philip advancing yes but wait a moment robbie who says i have a hatred of publicity i haven't said anything so absurd don't i write for the public exactly philip standing near roop i have no dislike for publicity for fame by george sir i covet it if i can win it honestly and decently roop shrugging his shoulders ah and i humble myself before the men and women of my craft and they are many who succeed in winning it in that fashion or who are content to remain obscure but for the rest the hustlers of the pen the seekers after mere blatant applause the pickers up of cheap popularity i have a profound contempt for them and their methods you can't deny the ability of some of them deny it of course i don't deny it but no amount of ability of genius if you will absolves the follower of any art from the obligation of conducting himself as a modest gentleman ah well there's where you're so hopelessly victorian and out of date 
Well, that's my creed, and whether I've talent or not, I'd rather snuff out, when my time comes, neglected and a pauper, than go back on it. Walking away and pacing the room. Oh, but I'm not discouraged, my dear Robbie. Not a scrap. I'm not discouraged, though you do regard me as a dismal failure. No, no. I shall collar the great public yet. You mark me. I shall collar him yet, and without stooping to the tricks and devices you advocate. Returning to Roop. Robbie. Roop, rising. Hey? Philip, laying his hands on Roop's shoulders. If my next book, my autumn book, isn't a mighty go, uh, I'll eat my hat. Dear excellent friend, perhaps you'll be obliged to for nourishment. <laughs> Taking Roop's arm. Oddly enough, oddly enough, the story deals with the very subject we've been discussing. Indeed. Yes, you hit on the title a few minutes ago. Really? When you were talking of Adeline and her people, the big drum. C -c capital Titterton, my new publisher, is tremendously taken with the scheme of the thing. Keen as mustard about it. Um, pardon me, Phil. Eh? Roop, fingering the lapel of Philip's coat. I say, old man, you wouldn't be guilty of the deplorably bad taste of putting me into it, would you? Philip, slapping him on the back. <laughs> My dear Robbie, half the polite world is in it. Don't tell me you wish to be left out in the cold. Dear excellent friend. Noise enters again at the door on the left, preceding Collingham Green. Noise, announcing Green, and then retiring. Mr. Collingham Green. Green. A gaily dressed, genial soul, with a flower in his buttonhole, a monocle, a waxed moustache, and a skilful arrangement of a sparse head of hair, shaking hands with Roop. How are you, my dear fellow? My dear Collie, delighted to see you. Ah, an awful scramble to get here. I was afraid I shouldn't be able to manage it. You'd have broken our hearts if you hadn't. You know Mackworth. And his charming works. Shaking hands with Philip. Haven't met you for ever so long. How'd you do? Ah, oh, I must sit down. Sitting on the fauteuil stool and taking off a pair of delicately tinted gloves. The season is killing me. I'm sure I shan't last till Goodwood Robbie. Yes, it's a shocking rush, isn't it? Ha ha ha. You only fancy you're rushed. Your life is a rest cure compared with mine. You've no conception, either of you, what my days are just now. Philip, finding himself addressed. Exhausting, no doubt. Take today, for example. I was in my bath at half-past seven. Half-past seven? Though I wasn't in bed till two this morning. At eight I had a cup of coffee and a piece of dry toast, and skimmed the papers. From eight-thirty till ten I dictated a special article on our modern English hostesses. The hostesses of England is hospitality declining. A question I answer in the negative. Quite right. At ten o'clock a man from Clapham Beasley's with some patterns of socks and underwear. Disposed of him, dressed, and by a quarter to eleven I was in the park. Strolled up and down with Lady Ventnor and Sir Hill Birch, 
and saw everybody there was to be seen i never make a single note my memory's marvellous left the park at twelve and took a taxi to inquire after lord harrogate charlie siverwright and old lady dorcas newnham ah am i boring you boring us lady dorcas caught sight of me from her window and held me in i sat with her for twenty minutes greeny she always calls me mimicking now greeny what's the news <laughs> i walked away from lady dorcas's and was in upper grosvenor street punctually at one to roop there's been a meeting at baroness vandermeer's to-day you know over this fete at the albert hall ah yes i'm to be in lady freddie hoyle's plantagenet group i'm a knight in attendance on king john i had a short private chat with the baroness and followed her into the drawing-room they were still at it when i sneaked out a side door and here i am extraordinary hey phil philip leaning against the chair by the writing-table most interesting green to philip rising i lunch with roop to roop you'll have to let me off at three robbie and then my grind begins again roop throwing up his hands in admiration oh horse show two musical parties lady goldamings and mrs reggie mosenstein's then home and more dictation to my secretary dine with sir patrick and lady logan at the carlton and then to the opera with my spyglass from covent garden i dash down to fleet street write my late stuff and my day's done ah unless i have strength left for lady ronaldshaw's dance and a crush at mrs hume cutler's roop repeating his former action oh oh noise reappears mrs walter quebec mrs walter quebec enters and noise withdraws roop taking mrs quebec's hand my dear mrs wally how are you mrs quebec a bright energetic fairly young lady how are you robbie walter is so grieved he's lunching at the auto with tony baxter he did try to wriggle out of it discovering green and going to him with her hand extended oh i am glad you're just the man i'm dying to see green kissing her hand ah lady skews and i are getting up a concert in aid of the poor sufferers from the earthquake in what's the name of the place i forget lady skews knows it and we want you to say a lot about us in your darling paper only distinguished amateurs that's where the novelty comes in lady skews is going to play the violin if she can pull herself together she hasn't played for centuries seeing philip advancing and shaking hands with him casually how do you do to green and i've promised to sing splendid but how captivating mrs quebec to green i've sunk so seldom since my marriage and they've had such a difficulty to lure me out of my tiny wee shell would you mind dwelling on that a little of course not anything i can do dear lady that's too utterly sweet of you you shall have full particulars to-morrow i wouldn't bother you but it's charity isn't it oh and there's something else i want you to be kind over noise returns mrs godfrey anslow 
The Honourable Mrs. Godfrey Anslow enters, and noise goes out again. Mrs. Anslow, a tall, languishing woman with a toneless drawl. To Roop. Am I late? Roop, pressing her hand. Not a second, my very dear friend. Can't help it if I am. My car got smashed up last week in Roehampton Lane, and the motor people have lent me the original arc, on wheels. Mrs. Quebec comes to her. Hello, Esme. Mrs. Quebec, shaking hands. How are you, Millicent? Mrs. Anslow, going to Green and giving him her hand. Oh, and here's that horrid Mr. Green. My dear Mrs. Anslow. Horrid? What's he done? Sitting in the chair by the small table. I consider him a white-robed angel. I sent him a long account of my accident at Roehampton, and he hasn't condescended to take the slightest notice of it. Oh, Mr. Green. Mrs. Anslow to Green. It's cruel of you. Green to Mrs. Anslow, twiddling his moustache. Alack and alas, dear lady, motor collisions are not quite in my line. You might have passed it on to the accident, man. Or you could have said that I'm to be seen riding in the row, evidently none the worse for my recent shock. That's in your line. Ah, I might have done that, certainly. Tapping his brow. Fact is, height of the season, uh, perfectly distracted. Mrs. Anslow, with the air of a martyr. It doesn't matter. I shan't trouble you again. I've never been a favourite of yours. Ah, don't. It's true. I was one of the few storeholders at the Army and Navy Bazaar, whose gowns you didn't describe. Seeing Philip and nodding to him hazily. How do you do? Roop prompting her. Mr. Mackworth? Mrs. Anslow goes to Philip and proffers him a limp hand. Green retreats to the fireplace and Mrs. Quebec rises and pursues him. Mrs. Anslow to Philip. I think we met once at my cousin's, the Fairfields. Philip bowing. Yes. You write, don't you? Philip evasively. No. Roop joining them. My dear Mrs. Anslow, Mr. Mackworth is one of the most gifted authors of the present day. Philip glaring at Roop. Tish! Roop to Mrs. Anslow. Get his books from your library instantly. I envy you the treat in store for you. Noise again appears. Madame de Chaumier. Ottiline de Chaumier enters, a beautiful, pale, elegant young woman of three and thirty, with a slightly foreign air and perfect refinement of manner. Noise retires. Everybody is manifestly pleased to see Ottiline, except Philip, who picks up a little figure from the writing-table and examines it critically. Roop, hurrying to her and taking her hand. Ah! Robbie, dear. Mrs. Quebec, going to Ottiline. Oh! They embrace. This is lovely. Ottiline, to Mrs. Anslow, who comes to her. Millicent. To Green, who bustles forward and kisses her hand. How do you do? Mrs. Quebec, to Ottiline. You didn't stay long at the Railton's last night, Ottiline. I had a headache. Mother was so vexed with me. Headache or not, you looked divine. 
a vision. Green to Ottiline. Ha! I hope you saw the remarks about you in this morning's paper, dear lady. For shame, Mr. Green. Have you been flattering me again? Ha-ha-ha-ha-ha! <laughs> Roop, standing near Philip. Madame de Chaumier. Ottiline, advancing. Yes? Here's an old friend of ours whom we haven't met for years, Magworth. She starts and then waits, rooted for Philip's approach. He replaces the figure carefully and comes to her, and their hands touch. Roop leaves them and engages the others in conversation. Ottiline to Philip in a low voice, her eyes sparkling. I had no idea I was to have this pleasure. Philip, gently, but without exceeding the bounds of mere courtesy. Robbie excels in surprises. He has been almost equally reserved with me. Are you very well? Very. And you? Very. And Sir Randall and Lady Filson? Quite well. And my brother Bertram? Chilled. Perhaps you've heard that I'm making my home with them now in London, permanently, that I've left Paris. Robbie and the newspapers have told me. It's late in the day to do it. May I offer you my sympathy? Ottiline, with a stately inclination of the head. Thank you. And I, my congratulations on your success. Success? Ah, le public est si bête. I've read every line you've written, I believe. He bows. I, I felt proud to think that we were once... That we were once... Not des inconnus. He bows again, and there is silence between them. The dining-room door opens, and Noise presents himself. A waiter is seen in the dining-room, standing at the side-table. Noise to Roop. Lunch is served, sir. Roop to everybody. Come along, come along, dear excellent friends. Ottiline smiles graciously at Philip and turns from him. Lead the way, dear Mrs. Anslow. Madame de Chaumier. Mrs. Anslow slips her arm through Ottiline. You both sit opposite the fireplace. Dear Mrs. Wally, come along, my dear Phil. Putting an arm round Green's shoulder. Collie. They all move into the dining room, and the curtain falls. It rises again almost immediately. A chair, withdrawn from the further window, is now beside the fauteuil stool on its right and the chair which was close to the small table has been pulled out into the room and faces the fauteuil stool at some little distance from it. The doors are closed. Mrs. Anslow and Mrs. Quebec are taking their departure. The former is saying good-bye to Ottiline, who is standing before the fireplace. The latter is talking to Roop near the door on the left. On the right is Philip, ready to receive his share of the adieu. Mrs. Anslow, shaking hands with Ottiline. Goodbye. You might come on to Olympia. My sister-in-law's box holds six. Sorry, I, I really am full up this afternoon. Mrs. Quebec comes to Ottiline as Mrs. Anslow goes to Philip. Roop opens the door on the left and remains there, waiting to escort the ladies to the outer door. Can I give you a lift anywhere, Esme? Thanks. Millicent's taking me along with her to the horse show. Mrs. Anslow, shaking hands with Philip. Very pleased to meet you again. Ever see anything now of the Fairfields? Never. 
No loss. I believe dear old Eustace is off his head. Possibly. Mrs. Anslow, tolerantly. But then, so many people are off their heads, aren't they? A great many. Mrs. Anslow, bestowing a parting nod upon Philip and crossing to the open door. Shan't wait, Esme. It's a month's journey to Hammersmith in the Ark. Mrs. Quebec, kissing Ottoline. Goodbye. Mrs. Anslow, to Roop. Charming lunch. Enjoyed myself enormously. Mrs. Quebec, shaking hands with Philip hastily. Goodbye, Mr. Mackworth. Goodbye. Roop and Mrs. Anslow have disappeared. Mrs. Quebec follows them. Ottoline approaches Philip slowly. Ottoline, giving him her hand. Goodbye. Philip, bending over it formally. Goodbye. We're in Ennismore Gardens, you know. He acknowledges the information by a stiff bow. She interests herself in her glove buttons. You, you've chosen to drop out of my, out of our lives so completely that I hardly like to ask you to come and see us. Philip constrainedly. You're very good, but I, I don't go about much in these days. And I'm afraid. Oh, I'm sure you're wise. Drawing herself erect. A writer shouldn't give up to society what is meant for mankind, should he? She passes him distantly to leave the room, and he suddenly grips her shoulder. Oddly. By a mutual impulse, they glance swiftly at the open door, and she throws herself into his arms. Philip. Just as swiftly, they separate, and a moment afterwards, Roop returns, rubbing his hands cheerily. Roop, advancing but not shutting the door. There, now we're by ourselves. To Ottoline. You're not running away. Ottoline, confused. Oh, I... I... It's only half past three. Why don't you and Macware sit down and have a little talk together? To Philip, who has strolled to the further window and is looking into the street. You're in no hurry, Phil? Not in the least. Roop, crossing to the writing table. I'll finish answering my letters. I shan't have a moment later on. Gathering up his correspondence. You won't disturb me. I'll polish them off in another room. To Ottoline. Are you going to Lady Porton's by and by, by any chance? Ottoline, again at the fireplace, her back to Roop and Philip. And Mrs. Jack Hathcote's and Mrs. Leroy's. You shall take me to Lounge Square, if you will. Shan't be more than ten minutes. At the door. Ten minutes, dear excellent friends, a quarter of an hour at the outside. He vanishes, closing the door. There is a pause, and then Philip and Ottoline turn to one another, and he goes to her. Ottoline, her hands in his, breathlessly. You are glad to see me, then. <laughs> oh, you are glad. Yes. You brute, Phil, to make me behave in such an undignified way. If there's any question of dignity, what on earth has become of mine? I was the first to break down. To break down? Why should you try to treat me so freezingly? You can't be angry with me still after all these years. C'est pas possible. It was stupid of me to attempt to hide my feelings pressing her hand to his lips. But 
my dear otto my dear girl where is the use of our coming into each other's lives again the use why shouldn't we be again as we were in the old paris days embarrassed well not quite perhaps philip smiling of course if you command it i'm ready to buy some smart clothes and fish for opportunities of meeting you occasionally on a crowded staircase or in a hot supper-room but as for anything else ottiline slowly withdrawing her hands and putting them behind her as for anything else i repeat qui bono regarding her kindly but penetratingly what would be the result of your reviving a friendship with an ill-tempered intolerant person who would be just as capable to-morrow of turning upon you like a savage ah you are still angry with me as you did that evening for instance when i came with nanette to your shabby little den in the rue soufflot precisely ottiline walking away to the front of the fauteuil stool to beg you to prenez my father and mother in the journal you were writing for what was the name of it philip following her the whitehall gazette you were polite enough to tell me that my cravings and ideals were low pitiful ignoble you remember ottiline facing him as clearly as you do my friend laying her hand upon his arm melting besides they were true those words hideously true as were many other sharp ones you shot at me in paris turning from him low pitiful ignoble otto she seats herself in the chair by the fauteuil stool and motions him to sit by her he does so yes they were true but they are true of me no longer i am greatly changed philip philip eyeing her you are more beautiful than ever Ush, changed in my character disposition view of things life has gone sadly with me since we parted indeed uh, i'm grieved my marriage was an utter failure you heard philip shaking his head no no <laughs> smiling faintly i thought everybody hears when a marriage is a failure the fact remains it was a terrible mistake poor lucian i don't blame him for my nine years of unhappiness i engaged myself to him in a hurry out of pique pique within a few hours of that fatal visit of mine to your lodgings looking at him significantly it was that that drove me to it philip staring at her that yes phil otto ottiline plucking at the arm of her chair you see you see notwithstanding the vulgarity of my mind i had a deep respect for you even then there were wholesome signs in me shrugging her shoulders plaintively whether i should have ended by obeying my better instincts and accepting you i can't say i believe i should i i believe i should at any rate i had already begun to chafe under the consciousness that while you loved me you had no esteem for me my dear ottiline raising her head 
that seen between us in the rue soufflos at my blood on fire to have a request refused me was sufficiently mortifying but to be whipped scorched scarified in the bargain i flew down your stairs after i left you and drove home scorching with indignation and next morning i sent for lucian a blind adorer and promised to be his wife leaning back comprenez-vous maintenant solely to hurt you to hurt you the one man among my acquaintances whom i admired she searches for her handkerchief he rises and goes to the mantelpiece and stares at the flowers in the grate Ottoline, wiping a tear from her cheek. Eh, dear me, whenever I go over the past, and that's not seldom, I can't help thinking you might have been a little gentler with me, a girl of three and twenty, and have made allowances. Blowing her nose. What was Dad before he went to Buenos Aires with his wife and children, only a junior partner in a small concern in the city? Wasn't it natural that... When he came back to Europe, prosperous but a nobody, he should be eager to elbow himself into a respectable social position, and that his belongings should have caught the fever. Yes, yes. Ottoline, rising and wandering to the writing-table. First we descended upon Paris, you know, but Paris didn't respond very satisfactorily. Plenty of smart men flocked around us. La belle Mademoiselle Filson drew them to the Avenue Montaigne. Philip, under his breath, turning. But the women were either hopelessly bourgeoise or slightly déclassées. Inspecting some of the pieces of bric-a-brac upon the table. Which decided us to attack London, and induced me to pay my call upon you in the Rue Soufflot. I understand to coax you to herald us in your weekly corsery wincing horrible of me that was horrible 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 replacing an object upon the table and moving to the other side of the room however i wasn't destined to share the earliest of the london triumphs mine awaited me in paris and at vaudemont badricourt as the comtesse de chaumier shivering she is about to sit in the chair on the left when he comes to her impulsively and restrains her. My poor girl. Ottoline with abandon. Ah. My poor, dear girl. It's a relief to me to open my heart to you, Philip. He leads her to the fauteuil stool. Robbie won't interrupt us yet a while, will he? We'll kick him out if he does. They sit close together upon the fauteuil stool. Oh, but he won't. This is a deep-laid plot of the old chap's. Plot? To invite us here today, you and me, to... to... Amener en rapprochement. Exactly. Ha! <laughs> dear old Robbie. He laughs with her. Dear, dear old Robbie. Her laughter dies out leaving her with a serious, appealing face. Phil. Eh? Your sneer. Your sneer about me in the papers. Sneer? I detected it. Almost the first thing you said to me when I arrived is that you've been gathering news of me lately from the papers. Forgive me. 
it's been none of my doing i've finished with le snobisme entirely pleadingly you don't doubt me philip patting her hand no no nowadays i detest coming across my name in print but my people with a little mue they will persist in beating the big drum huh. brushing her hair from her brow fretfully oh, oh phil it was blindness on my part to return to them sheer blindness blindness they've been urging me to do it ever since my husband's death so i had ample time to consider the step but i didn't realize till i'd settled down in ennismore gardens how thoroughly i philip finding she doesn't continue how thoroughly how thoroughly i've grown away from them ceased to be one of them stamping her foot oh i know i'm ungrateful and that they're proud of me and pet and spoil me contracting her shoulder blades but they make my flesh feel quite raw mother dad and my brother bartram their intense satisfaction with themselves and everything appertaining to them irritates me to such a pitch that I'm often obliged to rush out of the room to stop myself from being rude. Impetuously. And then to have to watch Dad and Mother still pushing, scheming, intriguing, always with the affectation of despising, reclame, yet doing nothing, not the most simple act without a careful eye to it. Years ago, as I said, there was an intelligible motive for our paltry ambitions, but now, when they have forcé les portes and can afford to be sincere and independent, checking herself. <clears throat> but I oughtn't to speak of my folks like this, ought I? Even to you, whom I can trust, it's awfully wrong of me. I, I beg your pardon. Philip, after a short silence. What do you intend to do then, Otto? Ultimately, re-establish yourself in Paris? Ottoline, drearily. Paris. Is Paris so full of cheerful memories for me, do you suppose, that I should cling to it? Oh, come. I travelled about for some months after I became a widow, and when I saw Paris again... Starting up, as if to rid herself of disagreeable sensations. Now, my one great desire is to escape from it all, Phil. Moving the chair on the left. To escape. Philip, rising. Escape? To alter the whole current of my life, if it's possible. Sinking into the chair. And to breathe some fresh air. Fanning herself with her hand. Phew. Hmm. Approaching her and looking down upon her. According to report, Adeline, you'd have very little difficulty in escaping. Ottoline, glancing up at him. Report? Rumor has it there are at least a dozen ardent admirers at your feet, each with a wedding ring in his waistcoat pocket. Ottoline, reproachfully, her eyes meeting his. Why, have you been listening to tittle-tattle as well as studying newspaper paragraphs? He bows good-humouredly. My dear Philip, allowing for exaggeration, granting that my superall number half a dozen, which of them would enable me to fill my lungs with fresh air? Who are they, these enterprising men? Philip, 
leaving her abruptly and going to the mantelpiece. Oh, pray, don't ask me. I don't know who the fellows are, except, they say, Sir Timothy Baradell. Sir Timothy. Sir Timothy has only just succeeded in fighting his way into the world I'm sick and tired of. Shaking her head. Poor Sir Tim. <laughs> Philip is back towards her. Otto? Yes? What sort of world would you be willing to exchange for your present one, my dear? What sort? What sort? Spiritual and material? Ottiline, resting her elbow upon the arm of the chair and her chin upon her hand, musingly. Uh, I believe any world would content me that's totally different from the world I've lived in so long. Any world that isn't flat and stale and stifling, that isn't made up of shams and petty aims and appetites. Any world that, well, such a world as you used to picture, Phil, when you preached your gospel to a selfish, common girl under the chestnuts in the Allée de Longchamp and the Champs-Élysées. Half laughing, half sighing. <laughs> la, la, la. Again there is a pause, and he walks to the further window and gazes into the street once more. Ten years ago, Otto. Ten years ago? Philip, partly in jest, partly seriously. Do the buds still sprout on those trees in the Allée de Longchamp and the Champs-Élysées? Can you tell me? Ottiline, falling in with his humour. <laughs> Every spring, cher ami, regularly. And the milk at the Café d'Armonville and the Pré Catalan, is it still rich and delectable? To the young, I assume, scarcely to the aged widow. Or the grey-haired scribbler. <laughs> <laughs> he turns and advances to her slowly, looking at her fixedly and earnestly. Adeline. I wonder whether you'd care to walk under those trees with me again, for sentiment's sake, some fine day in the future. Ottiline, staring at him. C care? And if you would, whether I ought to tempt you to risk it. Ottiline, rising, smiling, but discomposed. To, to risk finding that le lait n'est pas mieux, do you mean? To risk even that. Drawing nearer to her. Otto. I, I should be delighted, if, if ever. No, no. Not as friends, Otto. Save in the best sense. I, I don't. As husband and wife. She stands quite still. Husband and wife. Some day when I've achieved a solid success, when I've captured the great public and can come to you, not as a poor struggling writer, but holding my prizes in both hands. Ottiline, putting her hand to her forehead. It's, it's not too late, is it? Philip, recoiling. Too late? For me? To be successful? Ottiline, passionately. Oh my God, don't say that to me. Going to him and clinging to him. Too late for me to recover a little of what I've lost. Philip. Pressing her to him. Ah, 
too late for neither of us it's a bargain yes yes but but ottiline her head drooping must it be some day piteously some day there are signs in the sky the day isn't far distant i have money philip Shh. frowning ottiline ah je vois que votre orgueil est plus fort que votre amour <laughs> Putatra, je ne m'en défend pas. You consent? Ottiline, pouting. <sighs> I may let my people know of the arrangement, may I not? You'll see them? My dear, what would be gained by that now? It would enable you to come often to Ennismore Gardens and have cosy teas with me in my room. We couldn't be what we are on the sly indefinitely it's impracticable there'll be a storm at first but it will soon blow over making a wry face still if you'd rather no no i'll see them if you wish me to nodding we'll be open and above board from the start ah <laughs> ah <laughs> philip his tone changing to one of misgiving Otto, I begin to be afraid that I oughtn't, that I oughtn't to have spoken to you. Why? Philip, gravely. You will never be patient. You'll never be content to wait if need be. Content? No, but patient. Shall I tell you a secret? Well? I've been waiting, waiting for you in my dreams for ten years. Otto. Isn't that patience? Their lips meet in a lingering kiss. The handle of the door on the left is heard to rattle. Looking at the door, they draw back from one another. The handle rattles again. It's that idiot Robbie. <laughs> the door opens and Roop appears with an air of unconcern. Tra la la la. That's done, dear excellent friends. Closing the door and coming forward. Upon my word, let us are the curse of one's existence. <laughs> Seizing him. Robbie. Hey? I can't take you to Lady Paulton's or anywhere else. Philip and I are going to spend the rest of the afternoon here, if you'll let us, and talk and talk. Suddenly embracing him and kissing him upon the cheek. Ah, que vous êtes gentil. Merci, merci, merci. Sitting in the chair on the left and unpinning her hat. <laughs> Roop, turning to Philip, his eyes bolting. Phil? Philip, nodding. Yes. Wringing Roop's hand. Much obliged, Robbie. End of the first act.